Eternal Health, episode number 29. You're listening to the Eternal Health Podcast, where we discuss God's great design for your life in body, mind, and spirit. Your host is Laura Rimmer, who's a nutritionist, author, speaker, and health coach. Looking for yoga tips or the latest protein shake recommendations? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. If you're ready for no-nonsense, multi-layered health expertise, drawing on evidence-based nutrition and biblical principles, welcome to Eternal Health. For show notes and to download your free 5-minute Optimum Health Scorecard, please visit laurarimmer.com. Enjoy the show. Hi there, it's Laura Rimmer. Welcome along to this episode of Eternal Health. I have got a really great show for you today. I'm interviewing Professor Timothy Noakes. Now, I've been a fan of his work for a number of years, and he is one of the real world-class pioneers of the low-carb, high fat diet movement. So this is gonna be a really interesting episode. Now before I um, get into the interview, just to let you know that this show is sponsored by Audible and you can get a free trial to Audible so you can select an audiobook to download. And if you're anything like me, I love listening to audiobooks. I go through Oh, at least three or four a month, I would say, if not more. In the past, I've gone through, like, I just went through them daily. Um, less so these days, but I still love a good audiobook. I'm currently going through Grant Cardone's book, Sell or Be Sold. And also, I am going through a book called Keto Clarity, which ties in nicely with my interview today, all about a low-carb diet or a ketogenic diet. So if you're interested in following up more on what we discussed today in our episode, then you may want to go and grab your free audiobook at Audible. Um, and you can get that by going to laurarimmer.com forward slash audible. A-U-D-I-B-L-E. So laurarimmer.com forward slash audible for your free trial. And you can go and grab Keto Clarity, your definitive guide to the benefits of a low-carb, high-fat diet. So, um, so yeah, let's get into today's show then. So my interview guest today is Professor Tim Noakes, who, following his retirement from the Research Unit of Exercise Science and Sports Medicine, is now an emeritus professor at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. He is co-founder of the Sports Science Institute of South Africa. And he's written a number of books. He's been very prolific in his book writing and his books are popular all over the world. I particularly like Real Meal Revolution. And he's also written a book called The Law of Nutrition. Following the publication of The Real Meal Revolution, he founded the Noakes Foundation, which focuses on raising substantial funding to support high quality research of the low carb, high fat diet. He now devotes the majority of time to promoting this form of eating and on raising funds for, for research through the Noakes Foundation. So I'm happy to bring you Professor Timothy Noakes. Hello and welcome everyone. Welcome to another episode of Eternal Health. I'm Laura Rimmer and I'm here today with Professor Tim Noakes and I'm so excited about this interview because I've been a fan of Tim's work for some time now and he's got a really, really interesting story. 
So, um, without further ado, welcome, Tim. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Laura. Privileged to be on the show with you. Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. So, Tim, um, let's just get straight in. So, you're someone, and I resonate with you because I've got a similar story to you, and it was only actually once I made my transition that I found your work, but... You have gone from someone who was doing a lot of marathons, doing a lot of running, and you made a switch from high carb, low fat to low carb, high fat. And I myself have made the same switch, but um, following your work has really consolidated in my mind exactly why that's been a good decision. Tim, tell us your background and your story. How did this radical change come about? Well, I started my academic career in 1976, just at the time the dietary guidelines were coming out. And I was working with a bunch of cardiologists who, of course, were the experts. And they told me that if I eat saturated fat, I'm going to drop dead tomorrow. So I decided I better follow their dreadful advice and <laughs> eat the vegetable oils and the breakfast cereals and the muesli and load up on carbohydrates. And so at the same time, time I was running marathons and the whole idea about carbohydrate loading came in. And so that was my life for, for 33 years, eating this high carbohydrate breakfast, being always hungry, then progressively putting on weight and my running was getting worse and I was getting hangry, I think we call the word. Okay. <laughs> and I didn't understand what was going on. And then one day, I just after I'd written the book Waterlogged, I sent it out the one night to the editors and the, my brain told me, it woke me up in the middle of the night, said, you must get up tomorrow morning and you must run and you mustn't stop running for the rest of your life. So anyway, I went out and ran. I had the worst run of my life and came back and thought, you know, something has to change, but I'm fat. How can I lose the weight? I know it's impossible because you've got to be hungry. And by chance, by absolute chance on my inbox, email inbox, there was a, an advert for a, for a book called The New Atkins for the New You by Westman, Dolik and Finney. Mm -hmm. And I knew them very well. I was so angry. I was beyond myself with anger that they could have associated with Atkins. So I presumed that they'd sold out to this father of the saturated fat diet. So I went to the bookshop, bought the book and read it and two hours later said, oh my gosh, I got it all wrong for 33 years. I've eaten my last carbohydrate. <laughs> and so for lunch I had a high protein, high fat meal and I haven't looked back since. For seven years I've been eating this diet. The, the first thing I noticed was I felt better within a few days. And because I was frankly diabetic without realizing it at the time, mm -hmm. but within six weeks, my running had gone back 20 years. I'd gone back to what I was doing as a 20-year-old, a no, 40-year-old, sorry. So I went from 60 to 40. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't believe it. I, I thought that the reason I was running so slowly was because I'd aged. But then I suddenly went back and it was just an amazing feeling. And so then I was pretty sure I was on the right track. I wasn't absolutely certain. I didn't do much about it for a year, but then it became apparent that the public knew that I'd changed from being high carbs to high fat, and then then the attack started. Okay. <laughs> and so my profession became more and more irritated with everything I said, and that eventually led to a trial uh, before the Health Professional Council. I was prosecuted for unprofessional conduct and in promoting this diet. And my university turned its back on me. So having worked for 40 years for the University of Cape Town, mm -hmm. I eventually decided I was no longer a good scientist and they what called mobbed me and, and pushed me aside just three months before I was due to retire. Hmm. And for the last three years, we've been fighting this case in the courts. 
And in April last year, we won the case 10-0. We had 10 rulings on our favor, zero against. The HBCSA, they appealed their decision or they, they, they appealed the, the, the judgment. And we've had the last year, we've been discussing this, this appeal, the judgment again. So we still haven't got a final ruling. Hmm. I, there, there's no way they can overturn the, the original ruling, which was so much in our favor. Yeah. Okay. So a big shift for you. And obviously since then, and I'm, I love your books, The Real Meal Revolution and, um, and the one you did with Jono Pridefoot as well, Real Meal 2. Yeah. And you obviously, this is something which in your profession caused a lot of um, upheaval. So it's obviously something you're absolutely now, even if you weren't then. So what is so bad about a high carb, low fat diet? And what is so good about a low carb, high fat diet? Well, the problem is the people that eat it. That's the real issue. And I think people need to understand that, that if you are carbohydrate tolerant and able to metabolize carbohydrates normally, you can eat a high carbohydrate diet. But those days are gone. Unfortunately, the majority of us who are raised on high carbohydrate diets, whose mothers ate carbohydrates to excess during their pregnancy, we become pre-programmed to develop this condition, insulin resistance. And if you have insulin resistance, you're unable to store the carbohydrate, particularly that you ingest. And then it becomes a crisis because you have to secrete more and more insulin to try to store away this carbohydrate that you're ingesting. And the, excuse me, the insulin simply doesn't work. So you get progressively fatter because you store the carbohydrate as fat, particularly in the liver. Mm -hmm. That causes a whole range of secondary effects, which causes you to over-secrete more insulin. And then insulin is the driver of all these diseases like heart disease, arterial disease, hypertension, obesity, almost certainly cancer, and very probably dementia. So those are the diseases that were uncommon in populations, even as recently in the 1870s in Britain, mm -hmm. when people were not eating the start, they were eating farm fresh foods directly from the farms, not processed. But as we have become begun to eat more and more processed foods after 1960s and more and more grains and cereals in higher quantities. So our insulin resistance has been exposed and we start to develop all these diseases. Hmm. And I was a classic example of here someone who does everything he's told to do. He eats his high carbohydrate diet for 33 years and then develops type 2 diabetes despite running 70 marathons or ultra marathons. Hmm. Interesting. So let me just make sure that we've got this right then. So are you saying that there are many people are insulin resistant these days and that is not only associated with type 2 diabetes but also a whole host of other things. So cardiovascular disease, even cancer, is, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So that wow. what I like to tell people is you don't have hypertension, you have insulin resistance. And one of the manifestations is high blood pressure. Or you have insulin resistance, one of the manifestations is a heart attack. Mm -hmm. Or you have insulin resistance, and one of the manifestations is cancer or dementia. Mm -hmm. That's the key. If I was involved in teaching medicine, then I would collapse everything down to insulin resistance for chronic disease. Wow. And say, so if you have a chronic disease, we must address the insulin resistance. And we do that, most importantly, by changing the diet and crucially cutting out the carbohydrates. Okay. And once you do that, you can start addressing all of these diseases. But of course, we don't do that. We just prescribe medications, which essentially don't work. Mm -hmm. And that, that's why medicine is bankrupt at the moment, because we don't have solutions, because we're not treating the cause. Okay. 
Okay. Now you mentioned that some people uh, 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 can tolerate a higher carbohydrate diet. What kind of percentage of the population do you, would you estimate that are able to tolerate it compared to those that aren't? Well, I think you get the idea that people can tolerate when they're young because you don't actually see the manifestations. People don't start to get fat, really fat, maybe until they're after 40. So that mm -hmm. a large percentage of the population you might think are healthy, but if you were actually to test them properly, you'd find they're insulin resistant. I estimate at least 65% of the population are, are insulin resistant. And I say that because that's the levels of obesity I see. And I mean, insulin resistance is apparent even when long before you become obese or long before you even overweight. Once you start collecting subcutaneous fat, you're probably insulin resistant. Hmm. And, and that is 95% of the population now, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if this is, um, if this is the case, and you've discovered that, and maybe we could talk about the, the body of research that underpins this stuff. How come it's not more um, promoted in mainstream medicine? How come most people don't know about this? Okay, I didn't plan this, but it turns out that this week I've got received this book, which is called Syndrome X, The Silent Killer. Now, that's okay. the story of Gerald Raven, Dr. Gerald Raven, who is a scientist and a doc medical doctor, professor of medicine at Stanford University in California. And he's the guy who really describes insulin resistance. And he says exactly what I said, that they're all linked together. And insulin is a driver of these diseases. And he discovers this by the 1980s. So Gerald Raven discovers this syndrome X, metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance and describes it in the medical literature and many people think this guy's going heading towards the Nobel Prize, which he should because he's put, explained why all these diseases happen. His problem is he chickens out. And why does he chicken out? Because insulin resistance isn't the cause of the diseases. Insulin resistance does not cause the high insulins that then cause the disease. It's the high carbohydrate diet in people who are insulin resistant that causes the high insulins which then cause the disease. And he knew it because he did three studies, as we describe in Law of Nutrition, which show that if you take people with insulin resistance or the metabolic syndrome, and you put them on low-carbohydrate diets, they get better. Hmm. And he, ne he stopped the research. In the 1990s, he no longer looked at nutrition uh, because he knew the solution, but he also knew that if he were ever to say to his Stanford colleagues, all of whom are famous cardiologists, guys, you got it wrong, mm -hmm. People have got to eat fat to prevent heart disease. He would have ex been excommunicated like I was. Mm -hmm. He was clever enough to realize it's not worth it. Mm -hmm. And so that's and so he's left it to us to take his message forward. So when people ask, you know, did Noakes discover insulin resistance? No, mm -hmm. he did. But even if you go to Atkins's work, Atkins in his book in 1972, the Atkins diet. Yeah. He talks about insulin resistance and describes it absolutely brilliantly from his own clinical observations. He didn't describe it from the science because the science wasn't there. And so people said, well, he just, you know, it just anecdotes that he's describing. But the reality is when you read the two books together and you've got Raven's book with Atkins's book, they're preaching the same language. The one is hard science, which is Raven. The other is hard clinical exp exposure. The difference was that Atkins cured patients and Raven didn't, hmm. which is irony. And we will remember Raven perhaps in the long term as much, perhaps more than, than we will remember Atkins. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. So if, if this is the case, Tim, why is Robert Atkins' books, as, uh, books maligned so much? Why do we think of Robert Atkins as a bit of a quack and on the wrong path? Because he came out just at the wrong time. He came out in the 1970s and the dietary guidelines changed in 1976. And so he was on the wrong side of history, unfortunately. Hmm. And there was, a, there was a revival in 2002, and then Atkins became quite popular. But then he died, unfortunately, and he fell and, and, and had a brain injury, and that caused his death. And people said, oh, you see, it was he died of a heart attack, which he didn't. Mm-hmm. And so there was a move away, unfortunately, from from Atkins, so that there, there was this revival and it disappeared. And then there's the more recent revival in the mo- because of Gary Taubes' book, I think, Good Calories, Bad Calories, yes. and Nina Teichel's book, yeah. 2014, A Big Fat Surprise. I think they have revived the drive towards a low-carb diet. Okay. So for anyone that's not quite clear, what is – what is a low-carb, high-fat diet, how, and how, if it does at all, how does it differ from, say, Atkins or a paleo diet? Okay, I think they're all very similar because the key is that if you're carbohydrate intolerant, you must cut the carbohydrates and not eat carbohydrates. So that's the key. And whether you're ketogenic, in other words, you eat, cut the carbohydrates sufficient to produce ketosis or not, yeah. I think yeah. that depends on how seriously insulin-resistant you are. So I like to put people on a on a on a horizon, so to speak. And on the one side of people who are highly insulin sensitive, they can eat what they like, but they should eat real foods. And the other end is people like myself who are type two diabetic and profoundly insulin resistant. For us, if we eat more than 25 grams of carbohydrates for any length of time, usually 25 years, we will develop diabetes, cancer, heart disease, eventually maybe even dementia. And that's, and that's the only pathway you can go down. You can't go any other pathway. You're going to go that way. But the beauty is if you don't eat the carbs, you'll be fine. Okay. So that's what we, the message we have to get out to people. So you ask, what do we eat? Well, we eat fish and meat and eggs and dairy for some and nuts and vegetables. And that's it. That's the diet. There's no cereals and grains. There's no bread. There's no rice. There's no potatoes. There's no pasta. There's no sugar and there's no processed foods. And it's very simple. I mean, those are the diets that the British people ate in the 1870s and the 1850s, and they were incredibly healthy. So what about the people then, and I was in this camp for many years, who believe, um, and not through a lack of necessarily, on my part anyway, research, but we've been brainwashed, I think, as a society to believe that saturated animal fat equals heart disease, clogged arteries, is that true or is that false? What's the deal? No, it's completely false. There's absolutely no evidence for that. And the best book to read is A Big Fat Surprise by Nina Teichel. Love that book. And there absolutely never was any evidence. It was completely made up. And then eventually it became an industry, the diet heart hypothesis. And then you treated this by, you treated heart disease by giving statin drugs which lower your cholesterol, which apparently has been caused by high fat diets or high saturated fat diets. There simply never was any evidence. The reason you get heart disease is because you're insulin resistant, and that's what uh, uh, Gerald Raven taught us. So we have to take the cholesterol and the heart disease out of our brains Mm -hmm. and place it with insulin resistance, and then we'll start to cure patients. So what has happened is that although it's true that the heart disease rates have come down, they were falling long before the diet was changed to this low-fat diet. And what's happened is that the arterial disease of we see now in patients is a 
caused by diabetes. And it's going to be much worse than any rate of heart disease that we ever had. Because this is a disease of all the arteries. So people go blind, they lose their kidney function, they need dialysis, they have heart attacks and they lose their limbs, so they have to have amputations. Mm. And unfortunately, diabetes doesn't kill you suddenly like a heart attack does. Yeah. It, it, you live for 20 years and you cost an enormous amount to stay alive. Yes. And, and diabetes is going to bankrupt all, all uh, medical services and the NIH, sorry, the NHS, NHS in the United Kingdom yeah. is going to go bankrupt. Mm. Purely one disease, obesity and related type 2 diabetes. And the track is we know the cause, we know it's prevention, we know how to reverse it, but politicians are too scared to do anything about it. Interesting. Um, so what do we do then if, and I see people all the time, I'm thinking of people in my church, people I work with who say to me, I have to be on these statins drugs because the doctor has told me my cholesterol is too high. And if I say, you need to not think about that, and I try and explain this stuff, it's very hard to get across to people when the physician is saying one thing and you are in serious danger because your cholesterol is so high. How do we approach this and how can we convince people? That, um, yeah. Yeah, it's very difficult. You just have to tell them the facts. And the facts are that if you have not had a heart attack and you have a, a so-called high cholesterol, we have to treat between 400 and 1,000 people for one to benefit. 400 to one and, and it's getting worse because it's getting bigger because people that heart disease rates are going down. So, and even if you've had a heart attack, the probability that you're going to benefit is about one in 50. So 49 people will take these drugs, even though they've had a heart attack, Yeah, they'll take the drugs and they will get no benefit. And the benefit they get is about three days longer life. That's it. Now, no one tells you those facts. And unfortunately the doctors are captured by industry and they don't understand risk and they don't understand these concepts of how many patients you have to treat to get benefit. And they work on the, 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 ace, the part of the curve about health, which is, it's a disaster. You see, in the old days, sanitation came along and we helped, we helped millions of people at little cost. Yeah. Now yeah. we're trying to help individuals at huge cost, but no benefit. And that's where, that's where medicine has moved. We're trying to get tiny little benefits at huge cost, and that, those drugs are classic. Now, the statin drugs are about to be replaced with another group of drugs at lower cholesterol, which are going to cost $14,000 a year, $14,000 a year for no, essentially no benefit. And that's the way medicine, unfortunately, has gone. So people have to understand, and normally I tell these patients, I say, well, have you got any, any symptoms of complications. And as soon as they say yes, I say, well, then that's a good reason for you to come off them. Hmm. And most people on statins do have problems. So yeah. it's not difficult to get them, convince them to stop taking them. Yes. Things like the shakes and memory fog and loss yeah, of memory. And, exactly. yeah. and muscle muscle pain is, yes. and also your, your, your exercise capacity goes down Yeah. and you struggle to exercise. And that's the point that is not made very often. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Tim, for that. Um, macronutrient ratios Ooh. so you mentioned um around about 25 grams of carbohydrates for people who are severely insulin resistant and i've heard you say in an interview i think anyone on any spectrum of insulin tolerance or, or resistance um should not be having more than 200 grams of carbs a day is is that right yeah, yeah. but but i would i would uh, qualify that by saying that those people are doing two hours of exercise a day or more Okay. You have to really be doing lots of exercise. Okay. So if you're a professional soccer player, 
professional rugby player, those that, or a professional cyclist, or a professional tennis player. That may, that's the type of athlete we're dealing with. Yeah. You can, but many of them will benefit by actually cutting down. And I just spoke, spoke to one of the, the IPL teams in, in India and convinced them through their coach that they needed to be a little thinner. <laughs> and one of them has reported a month later he's lost four kilograms and he's so much happier. Mm. So that even a cricketer who's playing a lot of cricket, they, they can also eat too much carbohydrate very easily and will benefit by, by reducing the carbs. Okay, so we want to be reducing the carbs. So let's say we get down to, for the sake of argument, and 50 grams of carbs a day. I've been doing that myself. Um, so around about 5% of calories um, for mm. carbohydrates. Mm. How much protein, how much fat then would you say is optimum? Or does that Well, I think, I think you need a lot of protein. I think to be healthy, you need 1.5 grams, even up to 2 grams of protein a day. Because I think protein deficiency is a real issue as you age. So as I'm now 68, I like to make sure I'm getting a lot of protein. Because okay. I think it's important for bone health. You know, bone health is not calcium and vitamin D alone. It's, it's protein and fat. It's the fat-soluble vitamins, but it's also protein. I think those are the things that keep your, your bones strong. So that's, that's why I like to, to take more protein. And then I think that at my age, you've got to do, be doing a lot of heavy training. Uh, with weight training yeah and uh, probably you need protein as well okay the one, the one thing you don't need is carbohydrates <laughs> so, yeah. yeah which yeah. is so uh, against what we're what we're taught isn't it um yeah. you said 1.5 grams just to clarify 1.5 per kilogram, gram per, kilogram per kilogram of body weight okay fantastic um but i have heard that fats don't affect insulin um whereas protein does carbohydrates obviously do it protein does yeah. as well so how does this affect things if you're yeah the you know i don't understand the physiology fully yet but when you take protein you also increase glucagon secretion and this for now you'd think that's actually bad but apparently that is a good sign but when you take carbohydrates you only secrete insulin okay and the the Increasing the glucagon for some reason reduces the risk of what's happening to the insulin. Mm. I don't fully understand it, but in other words, you can't analyze the insulin alone. You have to you have to discover what else is happening to other hormones. Okay. But, but the point is that protein is a satiating is highly satiating as is fats. Mm -hmm. And the key to this diet, as you know and we all know, is you become satiated at a much lower calorie consumption. Yes. So because you're eating fewer calories, you're going to be secreting less insulin anyway. Mm -hmm. So those are the advantages. And the, it's clear to me that the, although insulin is secreted in response to protein, it cannot be the same damage happening to you as when you're taking them as carbohydrates. Yes. And it's probably because you still, with protein, you're getting satiated and you're eating less. And that's, that's really what you want to do. Okay. Okay, that's useful to know. What about, because some people I work with, you know, if we aim for, let's say again, 50 grams of carbs per day, but they find, because obviously um, it's important to be having lots of greens and, and fiber-rich foods, um, is that right? You, no, it's not right. No, okay, go on. So, tell me about that then. So you, you, you don't <laughs> like recommend too much, too much vegetables at all? Yeah, well, I'm a great fan of Zoe Harcom, who, in fact, does eat vegetables. And I was with her on the weekend, and there she was for breakfast having some veg and other things, which I can't report, <laughs> but there were fruit. And she was eating fruit and veg, and she said, you, you won't believe it. I said, yes, I'm not looking, because that's not what I'm going to eat. <laughs> I had my bacon and eggs. 
But she was the one who discovered that eating five servings of vegetables and fruits a day, there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever for it. There are no clinical trials showing that. There are no clinical trials showing that fiber has any health benefits whatsoever. And you hear the story, you've got to have fiber for gut motility and keep the right microbiome. There is no evidence to support that. And in fact, the Cochrane analysis, they've repeatedly reported analyses of high fiber diets. Do they pr produce any benefits, including to the gut? Mm -hmm. And guess what? None, no benefits. Okay. In contrast, I get feedback all the time of people with gut disorders when they cut all fiber, their gut recovers. Wow. So, yeah, and I think there's a big movement now to carnivory, which where you cut out all plant-based foods. And a lot of those people are becoming quite vocal and saying that they were doing very well on this diet. Yes. That diet, low-carb diet, sorry. But they didn't, there was still something missing. And then when they cut the vegetables, they got much better. Because vegetables are very destructive to some people. They produce a leaky gut, in my view. And then you have problems and inflammation and so on and autoimmune disease. And I just know that if I had an autoimmune disease, I would be completely carnivorous. I wouldn't allow myself to eat one single fibrous uh, vegetable because mm -hmm. that some people there's something in those vegetables which is causing gut disturb disturbances and ultimately autoimmune disease okay this is i mean this is radically new to, news yeah. to, to a lot of people and i've heard stephen finney's work and and yeah but for me so let me bring it back to <laughs> something kind of tangible from my experience Without going into too much detail, mm. what about constipation from eating just, mm. yeah, without any... I Personally, I find when I include more vegetables, things move smooth, smoothly. When yeah. I don't, yeah. I, it doesn't. And have you tried fermented fermented milks like kefir um, and coconut oil? And those are two that work for me. And they've, okay. they've set my microbiome. I think you have to change your microbiome, you see, and then... Once that's sorted out, then you're in good shape. So, so I found that kefir is incredibly helpful in coconut oil, and I have perfect, perfect function despite the fact that I eat very, very few vegetables. I mean, if I eat vegetables every second or third day, that's quite a lot. Okay. Well, I, I do have kefir. I do have coconut oil, and I eat a lot of um. I mean, at the moment, I have a lot of nat full fat natural yogurt, yeah. and I make my own sauerkraut and kombucha. So I yeah. have yeah. that stuff. Um, coconut oil. What? Because that's not a yeah. Well, that, the Indians have always known. The Indian population also known that coconut oil helps with constipation. Okay, okay. I so that's the other one, and the only other one I found is uh, there is one. There's one uh, psyllium husks helps yes. as well, you, yes. and you need very little of that. Okay, okay. Um, what about my mind's gone blank? What was I going to ask? Um, oh, you were talking about fiber and gut health, yeah. Yeah. Now, I've heard you recommend eating less um, yeah. less times per day. So I know you mentioned eating maybe only twice a day, two meals a day. How does it affect things if we eat the same amount of food, exactly the same food, but are spreading it out throughout the day as opposed to having one big meal, two big meals, or even three smaller meals? Yeah, no, I think you should eat as infrequently as possible. That, that's too, you know, but again, I'm talking about people with type 2 diabetes where you want to keep your insulin down as low as possible and you don't want to secrete it as frequently. And I think we do very well on eating as infrequently as possible. Okay. So if I eat a large 
egg, bacon and eggs breakfast, for example, I shouldn't be secreting almost no insulin. Yeah. I've got food, I've got energy calories for 12, 16 hours without any insulin. And that's how I've treated my diabetes, hmm. by wanting to eat lots of good foods which have very little insulin response. Okay. And, and they, my glucose just stays flat nowadays. And so that's what I've looked for. Okay. So I think that's, but of course, if you're not sick, then this, my diet is very, it's restrictive and it's, it's, it's very simple. I mean, it's just, I repeat the same food almost every day. And I don't think many people would want to do that because they're young and whatever they've got to, you know, food is a pleasure. For me, it's a requirement that I have to eat to keep my energy going. And I love the food. It's make no difference. But, hmm. uh, but. My point is that I've got a medical issue which I'm trying to address, so therefore food is of lesser importance. It must just be a fuel. Okay. Under those circumstances, I eat once a day, basically, and then I will, I will snack on a few nuts and a bit of jerky or biltong. Mm -hmm. I eat quite a lot of cheese, and, and that's it. And I find it works perfectly for me. Okay. And I've got all the energy I need for exercise, and yeah, I've got energy for all day. And in fact, the less I eat, the more clarity I have in thinking yeah. and expressing. Yeah. I find the same. What about to people who think, and I know a lot of people I work with who are convinced about this, they, they can see, mm. yeah, this makes sense um, and I want to give it a go, but they either feel or they experience for the initial stages, this is too difficult. What about I, I have sugar cravings, I have carbohydrate cravings, I want to eat more than once a day. This sounds very um, restrictive, very hard. What about eating out? What would you say to all that? Yeah, well, I mean, I eat out. We are quite frequently, but we just know the restaurants where you'll get a good uh, high-fat, high-protein diet with fat, with meat and fish, and it's really quite easy. But you just don't eat the other things. You don't eat the bread, and you don't eat the desserts. And the, the problem for me is that the, the meal size is usually too small. <laughs> and so... <laughs> Because I want to eat a lot infrequently, and so I often have to order two servings of the, the main course. <laughs> so that, uh, but you you raise a huge question of addiction, and in my opinion, most of the obesity problem is food addiction, and it's not just sugar; it's also potatoes and cereals and grains. Yeah. And I'm beginning yeah. to realize more and more and more that this is the issue. That there's an addiction, and I had I was a full-on sugar addict and a bread addict, I suspect. Mm. And my wife would always question me, you know, why do you eat so much bread? And uh, I thought, well, that's good for me, you know, it's got him doing all this running. And I didn't think so. I think it was an addiction. And so when I converted, I said, okay, that's it. We've got to put that addiction behind us. And it took me 14 months to stop adding uh, sugar to my tea or coffee, but now. I could not, if you added sugar, I would just spit it out. It's, mm. it's so vile. It's got such a vile taste. But it takes a long time to get there. Now, for me, there was no question because I, my, I watched my dad die of, die of type 2 diabetes. Yeah. It's the worst disease. Yeah. He lost both his legs. He had strokes. When he died, he couldn't speak to me. And I mean, you know, I don't want that to happen to me in that position with my children and my wife. I don't want that to happen. And so the, I've got motivation to do this. And therefore, the sugar addiction, it, it, I, honestly, I could eat a box of chocolate and I wouldn't stop now. It still would be there. Mm. So I could start. I just know I don't start. You just put it aside. So, so that's the issue. And, and 
people have to understand what do you, what do you want out of life? You know, <laughs> do you do you want a really productive, healthy, enjoyable life that you live eighty or ninety or a hundred? Because if you're eating carbs, you're not going to get beyond seventy five. Much beyond seventy five. That, and people will only realize it when they get to my age of sixty eight. That staring down the barrel of the gun, you know, you better be in good shape now at 68 or you're not going to make it much longer. Yeah. You've got another five or six years of, of decreasing health. And, you know, I, I make this point that the life expectancy is falling in America. Now, it's fallen for the last two years. This is the country with the most expensive medical services, mm-hmm. the most advanced medical services. They're not going to help you. You know, it's up to you. And so I, I just get frustrated when people don't understand that there's a simple solution you know, just reduce the carbohydrates and the sooner you do it the longer you're going to live okay yeah okay. so that's my argument if if people if they have type 2 diabetes it's simple you're going to lose your legs if you eat the sugar if you keep eating the sugar if you don't have diabetes well you're going to get it if you continue to eat that food and you're going to have a less than productive life that's all i can offer you mm. Okay, so I think you're right. You know, we need to treat sugar almost like, I mean, I smoked for many years and I still wouldn't yeah. trust myself. You know, I gave up in 2001. Yeah. I wouldn't trust myself with smoking yeah. one cigarette now. So you, it sounds like that's what you're saying. We need to treat it yeah. exactly the same way. Yeah, yeah interesting. Yeah. If um, So let's say um, by this point in our interview, someone who's listening is thinking, okay, yeah, yeah I, at the moment I'm eating a higher carbohydrate diet, but I want to give this a go. Um, and if funds are limited, budget in it is an issue. Yeah. How important is it to be eating kind of pasture-raised organic meat and dairy products as opposed to just conventional meat and dairy? And is it any more important than the, the plant-based foods that we eat to be eating organic and grass-fed? Yeah, you're quite right. And Eric Westman addresses this question because he works with poorer communities. Yeah. And and he's quite happy to prescribe for meats that are not grass-fed and might be processed. He said they're better off doing that than eating the cereals and grains with sugar. Hmm. And I think that's the reality is what you're replacing. So in our movement that we're promoting in South Africa is Eat Better South Africa campaign for the poor. Yeah. And we said you, we, we can't get them to eat perfectly. They're not going to do it. But we can certainly make it a lot healthier than the foods that they're currently eating. So I think that's the goal. You move to the best you can afford, the best quality food you can afford. And as long as you're moving away from cereals and grains and refined carbohydrates and vegetable oils, then you, you, you're improving your health. Okay, just want to ask you on that subject of oils and fats. Um, I also have read Gary Taub's books and yes. um, and Nina Teicholz and and um, from my own research from years back anyway around hydrogenated fats and oils and things. What's your view, or what 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 does the evidence say about these industrial seed oils? Are they should they be not in our diet whatsoever? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They may not exist. They may not exist in your house. You go and give them to your worst enemy, and <laughs> encourage him or her to eat them as much as they possibly can. They're highly toxic, and yeah. the evidence is all in the literature. And it's got hidden, and it's got thrown out, mm-hmm. just because it didn't agree with the theory. If you lower your cholesterol, eating a vegetable is going to make you healthy. It didn't. So that's the evidence. And the evidence is that. That is probably dangerous, but certainly as you get older, the more vegetable oils, the more unhealthy you're going to be. Mm-hmm. So no, there's there's no role for vegetable oils whatsoever. People get confused, olive oil, now that's 
sure that's a vegetable, it's a real vegetable oil. Yeah. It's extracted in a, in a very simple way. It's these industrially processed seed oils okay. that are extracted with chemicals and so on that that's the problem. Okay, fine. So instead we should be eating coconut oil, you mentioned olive oil, fine, and then obviously saturated animal fats. And as we've covered, yeah. there, there's no issue with that. Um, okay. And butter. Don't forget That's butter. It. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I want to ask you about, because it's one thing I've struggled with um, following a, a lower carbohydrate and ketogenic diet, electrolytes. How important are they? How do you get enough potassium? Oh, because potassium is an intracellular organ. So if you're eating... If you're eating meat, you will be getting quite a lot of potassium, so that shouldn't be a problem. I don't see that that's, that's an issue. Yeah, I, you know, you must have to remember that, that we're eating meat, which is a fully formed organ, yeah. and yeah. that's a living animal. How can it possibly be that a plant, which is a simple structure, would have the same chemical composition, the same complex chemical composition as animal produce? It's just not possible. And it, it is true that there are some vegetables that are quite high in certain nutrients. But if you want to get really nutrient foods, you look at eggs, liver, sardines. Those are the nutrient-dense foods. Hmm. Eggs, liver, sardines. Are you saying then, because I sometimes track my macros and things and my yeah. nutrients in something like my fitness pal and it comes up and under potassium it says I need 4,700 milligrams a day. And if I'm just eating you know have a few portions of meat a day i do i know i don't hit that target so then i'm eating like two avocados to make it up are you saying that's not necessary or no i'm not avocados is great because yeah, that's yeah, yeah. very <laughs> that's a very healthy mm. fruit yes no that's perfect okay. so but, but I'm, yeah but in general my general point was that the nutrient dense foods are animal based yeah they're not plant-based Okay. So you've given one very good example. Avocado is very nutrient dense because a lot of good fats, mm -hmm. and that's fine. But you don't. You, we argue. You see, people say cereals and grains are full of nutrients, and that's absolute nonsense. They aren't. Hmm. Then they say whole grains, but but actually humans can't digest whole grains. So I don't know where this idea of whole grains is comes from, and it, that is a complete mythology. Why do you think early humans? had to get ways to extract the nutrients from these from these the grains. Hmm. And they spent hours preparing them, pounding them. Yeah. You can't digest them. You have they have flour has to be made from the crushing of these of these grains. Hmm. So talk about whole grains is nonsensical. Yeah. What would be your opinion? Because for me I was a, a plant purely plant-based for six years yeah. um, i never like saying i was vegan because i think there's a lot of politics and almost religion that goes with that yeah. um when i came out publicly in my podcast and to the local vegan community and said i'm no longer 100 percent plant-based i got a lot of backlash um as yeah. you yourself yeah. have experienced but i see um that society is moving towards promoting a more plant-based diet in the um, guise of we want to save the planet, save the animals, mm. and we're told that it's much more ecologically and environmentally friendly to be eating plant-based. What do we say to people when we see that happening and saying to us, you shouldn't be eating so much meat, you know, it's bad for your health and the animals and planet? 
Well, many more animals are killed to keep the monocultures that produce grains and that produce the cereals and grains, and, and that's a fact. There are, I, I forget, the numbers are maybe 200 or 2,000 more animals are killed to keep the monocultures going than there are the single cow that you eat a year. So it's a nonsensical argument. That's the first point. Secondly, we've got to decide whether we want healthy humans mm -hmm. and a healthy planet. Where's the focus? You vegetarians are anti the health of the humans, that's, it seems to me, hmm. by saying we must put the planet's health ahead of the humans. And what no one discusses is what is the environmental cost of the 400 million people who now have type 2 diabetes. What's the environmental cost of the injections they give them, the plastic that they use, the cost of producing those products, etc. So no one has ever actually done a proper analysis. Yeah exactly what is what. And my point is that the world, this, our planet evolved to have animals on the land, converting the grass into meat. And then when they die, they re-fertilize the land. That is the cycle. Yes. And we've taken them out. And I like the story that we've only got 60 harvests, and harvests left. So if you're, if you're 40 you, or 30, you better worry because at 90, there's not going to be any cereals and grains left because the Midwest, that soil is so bad. It is so nutrient de poor yeah. that there's going to be no plants in 60 generations, 60 years. Hmm. So what are we going to do then? And that's the question we have to ask. So this whole environmental story is being driven by the fuel industry, the okay. fossil fuel industry. They're driving it. And the vegetarians are getting wrapped up in it because they want to promote their arguments. But they have to be seen that they're being manipulated. Yeah. They better learn that because the manipulation of individuals for someone else's benefit is happening all the time. And they, unfortunately, they don't see it yet. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Thank you for that. Now, um, off air, you mentioned that um, you've recently been at an event in London and uh, you said it was very interesting. Tell us, tell us about that event and what happened. Yes, thank you for asking. So it was the public health collaboration led by Sam Feltman and he put it on, asked me to come and speak and there were two days and we held it at the Royal College of General Practitioners, which was a real step up. Yeah. And understand the Royal College will be making a statement sometime in the future about the value of the low-carb diet for the treatment of diabetes, which is amazing. I mean, if they were to make that statement. Anyway, so this was a group of people trying to drive diet change, guidelines of dietary change, and make sure doctors prescribe diets for diabetes. So the first evening closed with my great friend Peter Bruckner from Australia speaking. And I converted Peter to this diet uh, five or six years ago, and he benefited hugely. And he's just released his book, and it's called A Fat Lot of Good. Okay. And he describes how he converted, and he shows his results over five months, which he just was amazed how, how quickly he became healthy, lost weight, and started to really become healthy. So anyway, he finishes up his, first he talks about the, all the new evidence that's come through in the last year, benefiting, showing the low-carb benefits. So then he comes and he goes through the heroes of the low-carb movement. And then he says, and of course, there's one superhero, you see. So I'm blushing now. <laughs> and so he says, it's Tim Noakes, you see, and then he talks about it. And as he produces the slide, the audience spontaneously gets up and starts clapping and the 
and give me a standing ovation. Hmm. So I think, I think, well, this is the end. I'm, and I might as well retire now, you see, because <laughs> no, I can't do that. So literally the night, the whole night, I know I've got to give a speech the next day, and I think, well, how do I, how do I do better than that? You see. So anyway, I get up and do my speech, and I begin by talking about all the studies we did of, of high carbohydrate diets for athletes, and I try to explain how you get entrapped. Mm-hmm. by the industry, and you only see one dogma, and that dogma is that carbohydrates are beneficial. So I did all these studies and showed that what, what how our thinking was and how we completely ignored the evidence that high-fat diets could be healthy for, helpful for some athletes. So then I went through that, and then I got onto my trial and what had happened and the story behind the book, Law of Nutrition. And I go through that in half an hour or so, and then I finished up now before I left, uh, I'm from, my parents are from Liverpool, you mm-hmm. see, so, yeah. and Peter was the dark physician for the Liverpool soccer club, football club. And so you probably know where I'm going. So I knew that there was one song that I was going to play at the finish of my talk. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I start, so I say, well, that's my talk, you see, and I finish and then I turn on the video and it shows the record, you'll never walk alone, and then it starts to rotate. <laughs> and of course, everyone, then everyone stands up and they start clapping. And so I go off the stage and I think, well, they'll clap for five seconds or 10 seconds and it'll be, all be over. So they go on for 30 seconds, then they go on for a minute, they go on for a minute and a half, they go on for two minutes. And then when they get to near the end of the song, it's two and a half minutes, they all start singing, and we'll never walk alone. You see, you'll never walk alone. Mm-hmm. And they go on and they continue at the end of the song, they continue for another minute. So there was a standing ovation for about four minutes. And people said they had never seen it. Everyone was crying with, with such joy of what has happened. So I said, oh. okay, that's it. I can retire now. <laughs> and it doesn't matter whether the health professional council finds me guilty or not. At least the public understand what it was all about. Yeah, wow. So it was a very moving, moving okay. moment for me. Yeah, wow. So you, you've you obviously seen a big shift in, in initial reaction to, to what you've been saying yeah. to, to now. So that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, I think so. And I must say that I think the doctors in Britain are ahead of, certainly the head of the rest of the world. I, okay. I was amazed. Right. A lot okay. of people said to me that there's a degree of acceptance now which wasn't there even a year ago. And my colleagues are speaking and talking and they're going to speak with endocrinologists and diabetologists at conferences and there's no criticism. They say, no, that's fine. What you're saying is perfect. We can try it, Hmm. which is is very unusual. So something's happening in Britain and I think it's because the NHS – well, I think – sorry, I must must give your press full credit for this because your press is really getting behind the low-carb movement and the anti-sugar movement. Mm -hmm. And that's very powerful. And that's not happened in the United Kingdom, in the United States. It's not happened in this country. I don't think it's happened in Australia and New Zealand. In fact, it's the opposite, maybe. So your media is helping drive this thing. And people like Dr. Asim Malatra have made a, made a huge, yes. huge job of that. And they realized how important changing the media was. And he's, he's had a huge effect. Okay. Well, that's very encouraging to hear. I wasn't yeah. aware of that. So that, wow. Okay. That's interesting. Um, you've recently set up the uh, Nutrition what Network. Nutrition Network. What's that? Tell us about that, Tim. 
Okay, so when we started the Noakes Foundation, which was from funds raised from writing the book Real Meal Revolution, yeah. we got a lot of money and I didn't know what to do with it, so I started the Noakes Foundation with the goal of promoting science of low-carb diets. And as we were going along that, we raised a nice lot of money to do that research, so that research is going on. But then we realized that what really needs to happen is the doctors need to be educated. And so we've set up a nutrition network in which doctors and other healthcare professionals can be trained how to prescribe the low-carbohydrate diet. And so we have a series of lectures with associated material for reading and examination material, and this will lead to certification in due course. And so ultimately our goal is to set up some sort of institution where, where you can get all the information you need because it's too late. You're not going to get it at the medical schools. Mm-hmm. And you don't need to go to medical school to get this information. And we really think that in 10 years' time, if you're not prescribing this diet in medical practice, you're just not going to have any patients hmm. because they will have learned. The, the tipping point will have happened, and they will realize that their friend got better on this diet. And the other friend who went to the doctor didn't get better, so they'll say, well, okay, I think I'll try this. And so the, the acceptance of the diet is going to happen in the next 10 years. And how a doctor is going to learn, well, they can start learning through the nutrition network, and they can start immediately. That's great to hear. Where can we find details of that then? Where can we go on? From our website, the Noakes Foundation, the Noakes Foundation website. Okay. It's got all the details there. Okay, I will leave a link in our show notes to that. Um, one last question on um, on the diet itself. So is there a difference between, um, do men and women experience different things? Do they struggle in different ways? And I'm and just as an adjunct to that, is um, in particular with relation to sugar cravings, is erythritol a good thing to be having as an interim when we transition? I get asked by women that a lot. So. Yeah, okay. Firstly, women do seem to struggle a bit more on this diet. And we know about 10% of people on this diet actually put on weight. And so they, instead of reducing their calories when they're satiated, or they should be satiated by the diet, they actually start to eat more calories. And we think one of the problems is women are much more likely to have been on a diet beforehand. And now they they think they're being told you can eat as much as you like. We didn't say that. We can say eat till you're no longer hungry. And for some, they they don't understand hunger so that they tend to overeat. And that's an issue. We have found that for many women, it helps that they cut dairy at least to see if that will work. So that they become more carnivorous. They cut the dairy, become more carnivorous. And the other thing is that they fast so that we get them onto intermittent fasting more quickly. Mm-hmm. And those two things can often help women who struggle to lose weight. But again, our point, my point is perhaps that if you've dieted before, your controller in the brain, the epistat, may be distorted. And it may take a longer time to get adjusted. Okay. Men seem to, on the whole, lose weight more effectively than women. But just having said that, there are many women who've lost huge amounts of weight. So this is absolutely not an absolute. It's just a general statement. Yeah. It may or may be true, but it's certainly the information we get back. Okay. And your thoughts on erythritol? Erythritol. Okay. Real meal food list that's in the grey area. I think. What's your thoughts on it? Yeah, I'm. I'm very not. I'm not agreeing with it. I'm. I'm very opposed to it. I think you have to cut like that and just say, okay, the sweet taste must go. And I think you can do that if you if your diet you make you eat as much fat and protein in the foods you like. 
So most people have a preference. They might like eggs or dairy or fish or meat. Well, focus on the food stuff that you really enjoy mm-hmm. and stick to that one. And when you get hungry, eat that food. And when you get a craving for sugar, go and eat that food. And that's the way I cope with my own problem. And it's the one I, I tend to suggest because you know, eating these foods, they are delicious. Mm-hmm. And you just have to find the food that you find delicious and just eat that. And you know, don't feel worried. I remember when I started for the first month, I said, I'm not going to eat any vegetables because I don't know what how much carbs they have in them. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to be mainly carnivorous. And I thought, I'm surely I'm not going to drop dead in a, in a month from deficiencies. And it turns out seven years later, I'm still eating pretty much the same and hmm. seem to be doing okay. Okay. And just final question. So if someone was to embrace a low carb, high fat diet, or even a ketogenic diet, what are the benefits they could experience? Just kind of in a nutshell, what's, what's the goal? Okay. The number one benefit, and it's very important to make this as the number one, is you take control of the food. Food no longer controls you. You take hmm. control. And in our research we're currently doing of diabetics who've reversed their type 2 diabetes on the diet, the key finding is that the ones who convert are the ones who totally take control of their diet. And they, they eat when they want to eat and not when the food tells them to eat. And that is critical. And they said it's completely life-changing. And I mean, I can walk down the street and get embraced by any number of people saying, You've saved my life because you changed my relationship to food, and that's the key. I no longer have cravings. I'm completely in control. I only eat when I want to eat, not because there's some stimulus out there making me eat. And I think that's that's the number one. And what we found is that's more important, actually, than reversing the diabetes. Yeah. That's what determines the outcome. So people will tell you, oh, I lost this amount of weight, and so on, but that's the consequence of controlling the way you eat. Yeah. So that is the specific advantage. And then everything else follows. So that you reverse all these conditions that you had and but mostly you get some energy hmm. and, then, and just go all day. And you you mentioned mental clarity as well. Yeah. Those are key factors. And you you just reverse you reverse the aging process. That hmm. that's very clear to me. You know I mean I can now tell what people eat by looking at their face and you can tell where the carbohydrates are hiding in the face and the, the quality of the skin and so on. Hmm. And I just feel sorry for those people who, who, who will never know that actually being 68 doesn't mean it's the end of the road and you have to be tired and sleep all day. Actually, you can be very active mentally and physically at any age, including right up to 100. That's what my goal is. Hmm. Interesting. Yes, so food freedom is the number one benefit and the other things, weight loss, reversal of diabetes and all that is a is a byproduct. So yeah, That's I don't true. know anyone who doesn't want food freedom and to eat when they want as opposed to yeah, being driven by food. So Tim, it's been fantastic. I could probably ask you questions for another hour. It's been a really great interview. So thank you very much. Um, where can people find you? You've mentioned the Noakes Foundation. Any anywhere yeah. else? Your yeah, that's that's probably the best. And I'm I'm on Twitter at Prof Tim Noakes, so you can follow my controversial views there <laughs> if you would like to. <laughs> but don't get me into trouble by asking what you should wean your daughter or son onto. <laughs> no, no, okay, <laughs> fantastic. Thanks so much, Tim. Really appreciate your time. Okay. Lovely to speak to you. Thanks, Laura. You too. Bye bye. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Timothy Noakes.
please do share it with your friends and family because this is important health information and the sooner this kind of stuff gets out the better really because otherwise we're just going to be kept in the darkness thinking that we need to eat more whole grains and we need to lower our cholesterol and have statin drugs and and all that kind of stuff that we've been conditioned to think whereas in actuality we need to be taking care of our heart health and in particular making sure that we're not producing insulin resistance in our bodies and one of the best ways to do that is by following a lower carbohydrate high quality animal fat diet and I never thought I'd be saying that ask me that five years ago I would have thought no way but um as Timothy has spoken to us today about, then um, the evidence is there. And it would be a good idea for us to get ahead of the curve with this stuff and start acting on this now rather than waiting another 20 years until the, until the dietary guidelines catch up if they ever do. So also um, do please subscribe to my podcast on iTunes or at my website. Show notes will be at my website, laurarimmer.com forward slash EH029. And you can also get your free Audible book and I would recommend personally getting Keto Clarity to give you more information on this topic by going to laurarimmer.com forward slash audible and you get a free trial and a free audiobook. So thank you for listening to, to today's episode. I will leave you with some Bible verses all about truth. This is about Jesus who claims to be the way, the truth and the life. And this is from John 8 from verse 31 so Jesus said to the Jews who have believed him if you abide in my word you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free they answered him we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone how is it you say you will become free Jesus answered them truly truly I say to you everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. 
Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have any questions or any feedback, then please email me. Or if you would like me to help you with this stuff, if you'd like coaching, support, and if you're just fed up or struggling on your own and want some help, or if you have any questions about the spiritual aspect of health, then do email me, laura at laurarimmer.com. And I will speak to you again on the next episode of Eternal Health. Have a great week. Bye-bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Eternal Health Podcast. Go to lauraremmer.com to download your free Optimum Health Scorecard and find out your current health score, plus tips, coaching, and training on how to get slim, healed, and energized. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, and we'll catch you next time on Eternal Health.